I guess you learned the lesson that you have to write on the bottom of the page, turn the page over. Well, let me just say uh, that it's a joy to um, see the handiwork of so many people who have um, taken the time to decorate our worship center. And uh, if you'd like to come to our house sometime and help, we'd love to have that kind of uh, creative uh, work done. As I look at that, I think to myself, it's not just about creating um, just things to enjoy here for now. It's to remind us of the coming, the first advent of Christ, and to make us long even more for that glorious day when Christ will come again, and to remember the hope we have through him. Uh, let's uh, bow together in prayer as we now have the privilege of looking into the Word of God. Father, we have read your Word. It has very much impressed upon us that there is a very significant thread that is woven throughout the Scriptures, reminding us again and again that you are an, a glorious God, a God who dwells in glory, a God who desires your glory to be appreciated and to be spread from shore to shore across this globe. And we ask, Lord, that as we look into your word, that Jesus, our wonderful and blessed Savior, that he might be glorified, that we might give him honor, that we might recognize that you are the one who, in giving us this word, um, is, are helping us understand and reveal just a small portion again of the great glory that is yours. And may we, as a result, have a heart's desire to glorify you in all things, the result of this sermon. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Now, for the past five Sundays, if you've been with us, uh, we have been looking in a series on a summary of some of the key doctrines, the key concepts uh, that were celebrated and uh, summarized in the Reformers in the 16th century. This is the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. And so we've noticed and boiled it down over the past several weeks to what the Reformers uh, refer to as the five solas, which is a Latin word for only. But we noticed that, that the declaring of sinners to be right with God is done, according to the Reformers, on the basis of grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, based on the Scriptures alone, with the goal of and toward the end of the glory of God alone. Now, it's this great summary of these statements helps remind us now that the Reformation was not just a discussion of non-essentials and just secondary matters that, well, just people disagree on these things. No, this was a battle that was being waged for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the battle was waged in such a way that the reformers were saying, who has the authority to determine what is the gospel? And the other thing is, who has the, the, the authority to define it? And therefore, what's the end of it all? What's the point of it all? It is to bring glory to God. So that's where we are today. We're looking at this wonderful theme of to God alone be the glory. And I've brought with me this morning my illustration, which I hope will work and do at least something to help us understand 
this particular principle of to God alone be the glory. Now we have a bicycle wheel here, and you have the rim on the outside. You have the hub here in the middle, and obviously we want to help you think about this illustrating the point of God is at the center here. Now if you have this, if you've ever tried to go anywhere on a bicycle, if you don't have a decent uh, rims that let the uh, strength of um, transferring from the tire on the outside to the hub, it's not going to go anywhere. And you'll notice that all of these uh, are going toward the center, which is God. And hopefully you're going to see that as we look through Scripture today, this is the theme that is not something that is imposed onto the Scriptures. This is what the Scripture is are teaching us and why God should be at the center of all things. God is to be the one glorified alone. Why is that? Because there is no reason for human boasting. There's no reason for us to be at the center of the hub, as it were. It's always to be God at the center. Why is that? Because salvation is all of God. From start to finish, it's God. Because the work of redemption has one goal, to bring glory to God. And the scriptures bear this out. Uh, matter of fact, if you look in your scriptures, of Ephesians chapter 1 has a very profound statement of praise to God. It lasts like about 12, 13 verses long. And you get to one point which it says, not once but twice, that we that God's plan to redeem and rescue helpless sinners was to the praise of His glory. To the praise of His glory. That we should be praising God for His glory. If you turn to Romans 11, and I would encourage you and invite you to do that now, have Romans 11 in front of you there, or you could have your Scripture reading. That's another way of looking at those verses. As you're turning there, I want you to think a little bit about how wonderful it is when driving along the interstate, you, uh, when you go down through like toward West Virginia and places where there are mountains, you'll drive in a particular interstate and you'll be on an incline going up, up, up a mountain and you find yourself doing this now for, for several miles until you finally come to the place, having climbed that mountain, there are signs that will give you an opportunity to pull over and to stop and to do what? There's a scenic view. How many of you have ever done that? Pull over and look? Yeah. You don't get a lot of those around Long Island. The scenic view is out to the ocean, right, from the shoreline. But if you're looking at the top of a mountain, there's this panoramic, incredible um, view that you can take in sometimes miles away you can just see the grandeur of all that's lying there in the valley below i think that's where you've reached here in the book of romans chapter 11. you've been climbing 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 through some amazing doctrinal truth in which paul has built this uh, incremental argument starting with there is a need a universal need everybody is in need of a savior because all of us have fallen short of the glory of god he lays that out in chapters 1 to 3, and then he provides to us a, a wonderful insight into God's provision of salvation in Christ, in chapters into 3 to chapters 8, talking about what does it mean to know God and to be known by Him and to have God's plan uh, ap applied to us individually and collectively as the people of God. And then he reaches in chapters 9 to 11, he gets into this big issue about, well, what about God's plans that pertains to Israel and 
Israel doesn't seem to embrace the gospel that much. And, and there's, what are the Gentiles? And so he deals with all of these complexities. And so we've reached now this crescendo where he's climbed and climbed and climbed. And now we look out and we look at this broad panoramic view here in Romans 11. And what do we read? Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has become his counselor? Who has first given to God that it might be paid back to God again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Now, if you don't find that to be inspiration point in your reading of Scripture, then it seems to me you're not engaged. This is a wondrous statement that Paul has put together here, a, a moment to stop and reflect. And here's my sermon, I'm going to say, in a sentence. The sermon today is, this is the theme, God alone is worthy to be glorified. God alone is worthy to be glorified. That's what I'm going to do with my points this morning. I'm going to just make the emphasis different on that one phrase. The first point is this. I'm going to look at the issue of God is worthy to be glorified. What does that mean? We use the term, but what does it mean to be glorified? Secondly, we're going to look at God alone is worthy to be glorified. What is, why should we glorify God? And lastly, I'm going to talk about God alone. How do we do it? How do we give glory to God and Him alone? So we'll look at some applications there, point number three. So the first point, God alone is worthy to be glorified. What is meant by the phrase, the glory of God? Now, many are familiar, of course, with the idea, if you've been around Christianity very long, you've heard the term glorify God or the glory of God. It's talked a lot about in the tabernacle, in the temple. The glory of God would sort of bring this bright sense of God's presence, but it's not easy to put into words, I would think. It's almost like if, if I were to ask you, would you describe sunlight to me, please? How are you going to describe it? Uh, well, it's bright. It's really, really, really bright. Okay, that's a good start, but that's not everything. A light bulb is bright. You get close enough to it, right? It's got to be more than that. And so there's a sense in which it's hard to qualify, but I think Isaiah gets us on the right track. When Isaiah was given this incredible vision of God that put him in a state of awe, brought him down to his knees, in which he now has sees God in his, all of his glory, and it says, uh, the heavenly angel said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his... It doesn't say holiness. You'd think it would say holiness. It says, the whole earth is full of his glory. Whole earth is full of his glory. What is he saying? Well, first of all, if God is holy, then we know God is set apart. He is unique. He's one of a kind. There's no one like God. He's an entirely separate category because he's not created. And there's nothing in all creation that will match God's majesty. There's nothing in all creation that will match God's awesomeness. There's nothing in all creation that will match his supreme uniqueness. And when God's holiness is put on display and it fills the earth for people to see, then we would sort of understand that must be his glory on display. 
Now, I've given you in your notes under letter A there, definition, definition of the glory of God. John Piper, again, he's much more dealing on a higher level than I ever will, but he just says, he talks about God's glory as the outward radiance of the intrinsic beauty and greatness of God's manifold, which means multiple, all different kinds of his perfections. It's a fancy way of saying, it's a way of appreciating the wonder of all of God and his excellencies. Everything wondrous about God. Now this glory of God is not kept in secret somewhere. God has revealed his glory for all of us to see. The scriptures make that very clear. It's on display every day. You're saying, well, I'm waiting for some sort of bright light to come and shine down upon me. Well, it's seen in nature. Psalm 19 says that the heavens reveal the glory of God every day. His firmament show forth His handiwork. It declares in an unspoken language that there is a God who is great, there's a God who is beautiful, there's a God who is worthy, who has a sense of heaviness to Him, a greatness, a grandeur, far bigger than us. And the greatest realm, obviously, that displays the glory of God is found in the realm of the church because Jesus, who is the, the one who has expressed and revealed the glory of God in human form, he has come and he has bought the church by his own blood and by his life. And therefore, it is in the church that God reveals his glory, the ones he has redeemed and made his own. Now, there's another point I want to emphasize this morning is that God has a passion for His glory. That is right and appropriate and suitable for God. He has a passion for His glory. Now, I have a couple of different verses that are different than what is in the notes here. I want you to make note here. Isaiah 48, 11 is a wonderful verse that tells us of God's passion for His own glory. He says, My glory I will not give to another. Now, that's appropriate for God to say, why? Because there's no one as glorious as God. <laughs> if someone else is receiving God's glory, that's inappropriate. Why? Because they are just part of the creation that God's made. And then I'd like to invite you to John 17 is another amazing passage, which I don't have time to go into entirely, but I'm going to read to you the first five verses of John 17 and see if you hear this theme woven into this prayer that Jesus, in that intimate moment which he's talking to the Father, right before he's to die and be put to death by crucifixion, we read in John 17, verse 1, lifting up his eyes to heaven, Jesus said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all mankind, that all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And Jesus says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do, and now glorify me together with yourself, Father, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Isn't it interesting? Jesus has this 
idea of the glory that they share together as father and son is the same glory from eternity past, is the same glory that he's now passionate about going forward. So much so, he says in the verse 24 of John 17, the end of the prayer, I desire that these disciples of mine and those who come to Christ through their witness, whom you have given to me, be with me where I am in order that they may behold my glory. God has a passion for his glory. And sadly enough, in the world in which we live, there are billions and billions of people who are blind to God's glory. They don't see it. They don't appreciate it. They don't know it or experience it in salvation. They live in spiritual darkness with no appreciation of the wonders, of the delights of God, of the wonders of God's love shown in the giving of His Son to the worst of sinners like you and me. God longs for all the people of the world to treasure Christ in His gospel, to honor, to worship, and to find our deepest pleasure in Him and Him alone. See, that's why when you think of nature of salvation and, and uh, God and His glory, salvation just reminds us that it's all from start to finish God's doing. I mean, it's, we read in, in 2 Timothy 1 that God called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose, His own grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from eternity. So that salvation is a plan that God has had from eternity, has nothing to do with us accomplishing some good thing or becoming more worthy than somebody else. No, no. It's God and His sovereign plan of salvation in the mind of the Father. And that that plan then has provided a Savior in Jesus Christ who came and, and, and made that salvation possible through His death and resurrection, His life. And that Salvation is implemented through what the Holy Spirit has provided and done. Not that we might glorify in ourselves, but that so that all glory may all be given to God and God alone. He is the one worthy of honor. He is the one worthy to be praised. He alone. Now I want us to look secondly as to why, beyond just the fact that God is the one who brought salvation to bear. But notice in this text in Romans 11, a couple of the reasons we find here that God deserves to be glorified is because God's ways and God's wisdom is beyond measuring. It's beyond measuring. You cannot get a yardstick out. You cannot get any way of, of uh, finding the distance of how deep it goes and say, well, let's quantify how wise God is. Is there a limitation? No, it's no. It's greater than the depths of the ocean. He says, he uses the term in Romans 11, it is unsearchable. You can't get down that far and find the end of God's wisdom and his ways. When it comes to saving sinners by means of a substitute, God's wisdom is unsearchable. You can't begin to just somehow measure how much God is a genius, how wondrous is His plan that he, he knows the best way to accomplish the most good in redemption by providing a Savior who became one of us, lived a sinless life, died a death He didn't deserve in order to bear the punishment of those who have broken His laws 
that we might know him and be restored to right relationship with him through grace and be raised to newness of life. You see, God's dealings in salvation, they are far beyond our puny, finite little minds. Have you ever had your mind put in its rightful places? You know, my mind is really rather small. I'll never forget when we were first out of seminary, we were in a church, we were in a small group, and one of the couples in our small group, uh, his name was Robbie, this fellow and his wife, and Robbie is and was a genius. I mean, his, his IQ is way up there. At the time we knew him, he was taking a PhD coursework at MIT, Massachusetts Institute of Technology. And uh, so we were praying for him because it was a very steep climb, even for him. And so he finished it and he brought with him one time a copy of his PhD thesis. He had it bound. It was about this thick. It was just... Uh, it, it, I can't even recall the title of it because it was something I couldn't even understand. It was something about how plastic moves through pipes. That's all I can remember. But it's all mathematical equations. And so what we noticed was that he, in the acknowledgement page, he put the names of all of us who have been praying for him in a small group. So that's my name. It's in the MIT library. You'll always find it there. Not in the PhD, but just as an acknowledgement in that paper. Because as I tried to read through two pages of it, I couldn't even get through half the words. It was way over my head, beyond my pay scale, as they say. It was gibberish. But when you think about the program of redemption, when you think of the plan of God from eternity past to eternity future, when you think about God who has mapped this out and brought it about and is working it out in his own way, let me tell you something. God has never needed to stop and ask me for advice. Has he asked you for advice? The idea is ludicrous. He knows the best way to be a just and holy God and to be the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus Christ, Romans 3. You can consult the smartest philosopher, the most accomplished scholar this world would ever have. They would never have dreamt up God's glorious means of providing a remedy for sinners to have Jesus, the sinless Son of God, laying down His life as a sacrifice, that God Himself becomes the sacrificial lamb to rescue those who are in sin. I'm telling you, folks, God alone is worthy to be glorified. He stands apart from all others in His ways and in His wisdom, particularly when it comes to His work of salvation. Now there's another reason there that God is alone worthy to be glorified. It's because He is at the center of all things. He is at the center of all things. Do you notice that text there in Romans 11 where Paul throws together this phrase about all things are from Him and through Him and to Him? Did you catch that? Boy, he is making a huge statement. He is saying that God is the source of everything. That no one created God. God created everything. He brought everything into existence, whatever exists. And that includes the galaxies and all the billions of stars we've now begun to explore and figure out how much is out there. And there's more. It is God who provided the means for everything. 
That is, he's the agent of creating, the agent of redemption, the agent of recreating someday and bringing about the great consummation that will someday unfold. And he is also the goal of everything. He is the the end line, as it were, the end of the race. He is the the one who is the the consummation, the plan, uh, everything that has to do with it's his plan, his universe, his church, He alone is worthy to be glorified. That's what Paul's saying in that text. Now there's a problem. The problem is for some of us, we can affirm that in our head, but when God in his wise providence chooses to do certain things, some of us say, well, wait a minute, I'm on board with you on certain things, but I want to go my way and I want to do it this way. That doesn't work in my plan. And there's others who say, no, I don't think that's the way I was hoping things would go. Or look at me, I've got a nice thing that this has worked well because of me and my good decision I made at that time of my life. And this is out of my own here. There are others of us who say, well, you know, you think about God. I am the one who knows better than God. And I'm going to stand in judgment against God. And I'm going to say, that's not right. That's not fair. That's not the way it should be. And I'm going to rethink things and sort of question his judgment. Look what happens if all of those spokes get bent outward, my friend. What's happening at at that point? There's major weakness in this wheel. If you keep doing that, guess what? Then that means the whole thing collapses, which is what happens in the life of those people who seek to live life and not give glory to God. And God alone. Life crumbles at that point. Sadly enough, we were made to glorify God. And too many people, myself included, is, as Paul says there, we have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. We pursue our own glory, don't we? That's the bending out of those spokes is, I want my own glory. I want people to think that I am a great person. I want them to admire me. I want them to, I want to find my significance. I want to find my, my sense of worth in creation. I want other people's opinions. That's what I live for. I live for their approval. I, I live to impress other people. Instead of what? Living with my life oriented toward creation's creator. We look for satisfaction in things that are designed to reflect the glory of God. We tend to think too much of ourselves and too little of God. And what's the result? Well, if you're like me, you realize about this time of year that too too few of us are thankful only a couple of days of the year maybe or occasionally here and there or only when things have gone in a wonderful way from our perspective, then we offer our thanks to God. We tend to be ungrateful if we're living for our own glory. We fail to render to God His rightful honor. We fail to offer the gratitude that He deserves to to receive because He has just so freely given to us all good things to enjoy. You know, God has made us to be hardwired, hardwired in a certain way so that we might delight, find delights that would not last just for a moment, but that we might have delights that would last forever and ever. The problem is, of course, our hearts in this life are captured by so many idols. 
our hearts are captured by that which has replaced God, taken His place. And the only way to loosen the grip of idols is to feed our souls, as one author says, on the, de- on the delights and to find delight in the dazzling excellence of God. That is the glory of God. Instead of being glory grabbers where we're trying to gain our own sense of glory by impressing other people, by striving to to fit in, to to be perceived as beautiful or or young-looking or athletically accomplished or whatever it is, we're designed to be glory reflectors. And that's another reason I like this illustration because I chose to leave the reflector on here to remind us that Just as the wheel has a reflector, so we are to live a life that reflects glory to God. It's not about me being at the center of the hub. It's God being the center and we glorify Him. To make much of God and His perfections. Okay, how do we do that? Let's move forward then and talk about the application here on point number three. I would suggest to you that glorifying God is the fundamental goal of our existence. I grew up learning the Westminster, reading the Westminster Confession of Faith. Uh, it's a great summary of doctrine. I don't uh, concur with all of it just when it gets to the issues of baptism, but, uh, but it was very helpful. First question was this, what is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. What a great summary statement of what is the purpose of my life? What's the purpose of your life? Why are you here? What's the point? Glorify God and enjoy Him forever. It's the central organizing principle of life. Enjoying God, being satisfied in God, treasuring God is the most basic way to glorify Him. Right? Too many of us, unfortunately, live by a different creed our creed is this the chief purpose or goal of my life is to glorify myself and to enjoy myself in whatever way i want forever now one of the ways to avoid this danger of living for ourselves is to consciously after thinking about and pondering and taking to heart the crucifixion of christ on the cross the price he paid and the the power of God to raise him from the dead, to think about the gospel of Christ is to consciously then dedicate yourself and all you do to God. Dedicate yourself and all you do to God. You say, well, where do you get that? 1 Corinthians 10, 31, we read it earlier. Whatever you do, whether you eat or whether you drink or whatever you do, do it for the glory, do it to the glory of God. Now, I don't know about you, but we do a lot of eating and drinking, don't we? Especially this past weekend. Yum. Boy, it's just its amazing how great food is, and it goes great when you have something uh, to drink with it. But it seems like a pretty basic, mundane thing. We do it every day. But isn't that the point? The point is what, what, they, what Paul is saying here is that nothing you're doing in life is too mundane, nothing is too ordinary, nothing is too insignificant to exclude the thought that you could be doing this with an orientation toward God to say, God, I want to glorify you even in this simple little thing I'm doing. 
Whatever you do. On the athletic field, what does it mean to glorify God? Well, at least it would mean that you're striving in your attempt to glorify God, that you would, yes, perform as best you can on the athletic field, but it's more than just attaining great statistics of your performance there, number of points you made, number of assists you made, number of rebounds you got, whatever it is. It's more than that. It includes the key element of sportsmanship. It's how you're accomplishing the game that says a lot about why you're doing it and how you honor the one for whom you're living. What about your classes in school? When you are seeking to glorify God, how do you do that? Well, I'll throw a couple of ideas here. And that is obviously to strive for excellence. All the while, excellence meaning you, you really are booking it, you're putting your, your efforts into studying, you're not just showing up and winging it and saying, well, that's just the way it is. I mean, you know, I just couldn't get it. No, you're, you're striving, you're putting in the energy and the time and the effort, but you're refusing to cheat. You refuse to bend the corners. You're doing your best for the glory of God. And in such a way that if you were to get a high mark, if at the end of the semester, or the grading period, wherever you are, if your grades have come out and you haven't failed, that's all first thing I always look for. Anything I flunked, oh, okay, made it through that class. Uh, and then you're always assessing, oh, I could have done better, whatever. But you look at those grades and you say to yourself, what is your reaction at that point? And here I'd like to throw a little suggestion in. I came across this the other day. 2 Samuel chapter 12. May want to write a little note on this one. 2 Samuel chapter 12. You can come back to it later. First, chapter is all, first part of the chapter, David is confessing his sin, which is a horrendous, very sobering part. At the end of the chapter, Joab, his, his captain of the army, is out there. He, he, pursue, he pursues some other town. He conquers the town. He brings back the crown of this foreign king. And he had it on his head. The thing must have been heavy. It says it, it's how much it weighed. It's got this fancy stone in it. He comes back, Joab, the captain of the army, he's the one that did He comes back and says, I shouldn't be carrying this. Here, David, you take this. You're the king. You wear it. And David puts the crown on his head. I think that's what we do consciously in our mind. Whenever anything we've accomplished, we say, okay, Lord, whatever it was, I give the glory to you. You have helped me do this. I praise you, thank you, all praise be to you. What does it mean to glorify God in other areas of life as an employee? I would hope it would mean that you are motivated to do honest, ethical work, devoting your time to making your boss look good, to helping the company do well, to serve the interests of the consumer that you're trying to offer whatever it is you do in your employment. To have efforts that you're investing that show respect for your empo employer, respect for those that you work alongside. Titus chapter 2 talks about whether you're the boss who owns the company or whether you're the person that works in the company, you should so conduct yourself in such a way that God's word is not dishonored. That's a way to glorify God. How many of you ever heard Johann Sebastian Bach? Is that, is that a name anybody ever heard of? Some of you really need to be educated about classical music here. <clears throat> but uh, he's this uh, genius guy who composed tremendous amounts of orchestration and uh, music. And as a great composer, he initialed 
all of his church compositions that he would write, all this music, with three letters. S, D, and G. Soli Deo Gloria. To only to God be the glory. He wrote that on all of his sheets of the music he wrote as he wrote it by hand. What's he saying? He's saying, Lord, I'm doing all this work and whatever praise may come, people are so impressed with the music, I give you all the glory. I remember, there's nothing, I have nothing to offer if it weren't for you. I live for you. When's the last time you offered a prayer like that to God? Saying, Lord, I give you all glory, all praise. Anything good in my life, it's because of your grace and your goodness and your dealing with me in such a wonderful way. I'll throw another one out to you. There are many, many in this long list of ways in which we can glorify God. But another practical area I would suggest in living for the glory of God is by serving other people. Serving other people. You say, well, that doesn't sound very exciting. I mean, come on. Serving other people? Yeah. Where'd you get that? Well, Matthew chapter 5, verse 16. Think about the less fortunate people around you. People who have not had the opportunities you've had. People who do not have as much education as you. People who do not have as many material goods as you. People who have not had opportunities to live in a safe neighborhood like you do, perhaps. Who live in a drug-infested, high-crime area. Jesus says, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your what? Your good works. Your good works. And glorify your Father who is in heaven. All of us have been abundantly blessed to live in this part of the world. Glorifying God by sharing with other people from the wealth of the blessings that God has afforded to you and to me is one way you can help other people get to the point where they see there's a God worthy of being glorified. If you shine the light of Jesus Christ into the lives of people who are plagued by darkness, plagued by despair, if you offer practical help and perform acts of service so that other people will see the light of hope that shines into their lives, they will someday, Lord willing, Join you in glorifying God and lifting their voice and appreciating that there is a truly great and awesome and wonderful God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I think about these opportunities to tutor in a local school where the schools are having a really tough time getting people just to read and learn to read well. It's mentoring other children who are at risk, who are from fatherless uh, family situations. There are many ways that we can invest in other people's lives. I hope that God will burn that into our hearts to say, Lord, if I want to do more than just live for myself, I've got to invest in somebody else around me. Some of you are doing that in your own children even now. Another way I'll throw out here this morning to glorify God is by relying on the promises of God. Relying on the promises of God. You see, that sounds a little obscure. Where'd you get that? Romans chapter 4. Here you have Abraham, who is being brought forward as a person who trusted God and responded in faith. God promised him, you yourself, you and your wife are going to have a child. 
was beyond their ability to have a child at that point. They were barren. And they're too old to have children. In Romans 4, we read that Abraham did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith. And look at what comes next. Giving glory to God. The idea of being strong in faith is equaled or made equal to giving glory to God. And Abraham glorified God by relying on those assurances, God's assurances and promises, despite many years that he'd been waiting and waiting and waiting for this child that he was promised. And it says in Romans 4, 20, 21, Abraham was fully assured that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. You want to glorify God? Then live that way. God, your, promise, your promises say this? I'm counting on that. I'm moving forward. This is what your promise said. God is glorified when we trust His promises. Now, we as a church are facing many challenges. Are we going to be strong in faith and give glory to God? Or are we going to live in fear and discouragement and wonder where we went wrong? Perhaps right now you individually, surely someday in the future, you're going to encounter some perplexing problems, right? You're going to have some troubling trials. They're going to meet you on the path of life. How are you going to respond? I came across an interesting statement that Thomas Watson said the other day. He says, it's a great honor that we do to a person when we trust him with all we have. Right? When you have a, if you have a manager and you say, okay, I want to let you take care of all this stuff and manage it for me, like a financial advisor. Here, I need you to help manage all this stuff for me, keep track of all that stuff. You're showing this person, indeed, we do him an honor. The same is true of God. God says, I made these promises. When you take him at his word, what a way to honor him. What a way to glorify him. Our faith is going to be sorely tested for sure. But that is why we need to arm ourselves with the promises of God. We need to rely upon God's grace as you claim his assurances in the midst of that whatever adversary you're in. You say, well, my life is not going too well. Well, what promises are you hanging on to in the midst of the darkness and the difficulties? The one that I go to again and again is Isaiah 41.10. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, I am your God. I will help you, I will strengthen you, I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. I I cannot tell you how many times that verse has gotten me through all sorts of difficulty and dark days in my life. And if the dark clouds of hardship have obscured the sunlight of God's smile in your life, remember, God's promises are 100% reliable. There is no small print that says, if under such circumstances, something happened, and all the contingencies of how you can't count on God's promises. It doesn't say that. God is faithful. And so the more we walk by faith, the more we take His promises to heart, the more we count on His wisdom, because He knows what He's doing. He is weaving together the different threads of our lives into a, we're looking at the underside of that weaving, right? But you look on the top side of that weaving and you see a beautiful, beautiful, plan of God unfolding. You say, well, I don't get it. Then guess what? You're not God. 
You're not supposed to get it all right now. You don't have the depth of wisdom. You don't have the depth of insight. You don't have the depth of mysterious wonders that God and His ways understands. You don't have it. And the best way to weather the inevitable storms of life is to claim and reclaim the promises of an all-wise, all-sovereign, all-gracious God. God is glorified when we fully trust Him, when we rely upon His promises. What about for you and the person who here today says, well, I'm not sure God would ever really love me. I know my life and I know I've really screwed up and I know I've done many things that I'm ashamed of. And my friend, God's promise comes to you and says, for anyone who believes, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Matter of fact, the greatest way to glorify God is to come to Him, is to come to Christ, is to say, I need a Savior and trust Christ and receive Him, repent of your sins and surrender your all to Him. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the reminder this morning in this text of Scripture. Oh, what glory is yours and yours alone. Father, we acknowledge that your glory has oftentimes been minimized by us. We've overlooked your glory. We've tried to be the hub at the center of the wheel. Or we've chosen to say, I'm not going to take all the different parts of my life and, and connect them to you and give glory to you. I'm just going to try to make sense of life on my own or try to live life on my own or take the glory about what I've accomplished on my own. I pray, Lord, that through this brief and superficial examination of this wondrous portion of scripture i pray that you would impress upon us a passion a passion for your glory that would inspire us and motivate us and give us zeal in our witness for christ in our service for christ and whatever we're doing in living our life oriented around you lord and i pray that you would cause any person who is here today who has never ever come to Christ, admitted that they have fallen short of the glory of God, that they would do so today in humble repentance and turn to Jesus Christ, who lived for them, who died for them, who was raised from the dead for them, that they might find new life in Christ and live to glorify Him and Him alone. Lord, impress these things upon us and by Your Spirit, burn them into our hearts, I pray, and give us a passion that will not go out for your glory until you return. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.